0: if you step way far back from this passage and you say, what's this about? I think it's, it's alerting us to critical conditions where if temptation sparks up, it'll go like wildfire. And so uh, the wind in this uh, scenario is Babylon. That won't make sense to you now. Hopefully in a few minutes it will. The fire is the idolatry in our hearts. The damage it does is total corruption of ourselves. And the solution is a bigger or a better fire. Um, So why don't you stay seating actually. We usually have you stand up. It's a long passage. I warned you, full of symbolism and imagery. So it's going to get a little weird. So stick with me. This is Apostle John speaking in Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, John, and I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. He'll tell you who that prostitute is in just a minute. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And the beast had seven heads, or kind of has influence, and ten horns has power. And the woman was arrayed in all the, the, the trappings and the clothes of a rich person who has a lot of influence purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Almost as if he says, but, but she was holding in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. And I saw the woman and she was drunk, but with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly, skipping ahead a few verses. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw, just a minute ago, where the prostitute is seated, here's what they are. Those waters, they're the peoples, the multitudes, the nations, the languages, basically humanity. And the ten horns that you saw, they they and the beast will hate the prostitutes so basically this evil system is going to turn on itself and eat itself they'll make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being one of mine and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled and the woman that you saw is the great city Babylon that has dominion over the kings of the earth almost there, getting there After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice. He's looking to the future now, and he's saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt, or a dwelling place for every unclean spirit a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying to God's people, "'Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues.' For her sins are heaped as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I'm no widow, and mourning, I'll never see mourning. Her sadness. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth, the ones who slept around with her and lived in luxury with her, they'll weep and they'll wail, and they'll see when they see the smoke of her burning, as if watching Manhattan in flames, and there's this great city. They'll stand far off and in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, or oh my gosh, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon. For in one single hour, your judgment has come. Let me pray for us. Lord, this is epic. This is huge. As you talk about the great cities, the great cultures, the great kingdoms of the world throughout the ages. Not just one city, Babylon, but all of the other many Babylons that have come since. Uh, As you describe what this battle between that and you is like. And we are caught up in this. Tonight's passage is hard to understand. It strikes our ears as weird and out of this world. So, Jesus, help bring it down to our world. Help make it practical. Help make it real. Uh, teach us what you would want us to hear from you tonight. We pray in your name. Amen. All right. Thanks for bearing with me through that. So I want you to imagine something. We start out. Imagine that you're an immigrant. And you've never traveled much in your life. And you're going, uh, you've heard all these ads in your hometown or wherever you live about Las Vegas. All the great, like, advertisements. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas or whatever else. And, and you buy that. You're like, yeah, i got to go to this city. And so uh, you've never traveled anywhere much in your life, but you go to Vegas. Your plane lands on the tarmac. You get out. And you and your buddies basically start sightseeing those first couple of days. And you're going through Vegas and you're going down the Strip and you start seeing these amazing landmarks. Right there on the Strip, you see the Statue of Liberty, which if you've went, if you been to Vegas or if you want to go tomorrow, you can see the Statue of Liberty right on the Strip. And then you, you, know, you find a tour guide and she says, and this is the Eiffel Tower right here, which you can find in Vegas if you went. This, these are the pyramids of Gaza and the Sphinx, which are there in Vegas right on the Strip. And over there, that's Venice. And you can, you yourself, in real life, you can ride a gondola with a gondolier, just like they do in Venice, through the canals. And there's a skyline of New York City. There's New York, and there's yellow taxi cabs, and and the roads are packed, just like in New York. And you can experience all of this in Las Vegas. Let's say you're done sightseeing. You've seen all the big landmarks and the super famous things. And so you and your buddies are like, we didn't just come to look at stuff. We came to live it up in Vegas while we're here. And so you go out to the hotel bar and they're kind of feeding you alcohol to get you a little tipsy. And what they hoped would happen happens. You start feeling risky. And so you go down to the casino and you start putting money on the table, roulette, blackjack, everything start pulling the slot machines and it's exhilarating the place feels like it's bursting with life everybody's happy you're happy your friends and you are living it up you're just caught up in the moment you win some money there's a girl or a guy in the corner and they've been giving you the eye all night and you've been noticing and eventually they make their way over to your table and just kind of flirt with you a little bit while you're playing with your buddies and um, this person's making you feel really awesome, really important, really pretty. You're like, this is awesome. I kind of want to ditch my buddies to be with this person. And he or she slips you their number and says, hey, I'm from Vegas. I can show you a really great time tonight. And so you end up, you know, you just push it aside, keep playing your game. But later of the night goes, you get a little lonely or you call her up. You call them up and you're like, hey, let's hang out. One thing leads to another, you end up back in the hotel room, you sleep with her or with him, and your week comes to an end. The next day, you're back in the airport, and you've believed the ads you saw. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? No regrets. You've seen that ad too. Um, you've seen the ads, of just living it up with your buddies there, and so you're getting back on the plane and you're about to leave everything in Vegas, but you meet someone there in the little like um, in the chair area where you board the flight, and this person uh, comes up to you and starts talking to you and they say, um, hey, I'm, I'm, I've been to Vegas a lot. I've, I'm actually a world traveler. I've been all around the world. I've seen all the great cities, and it's really cool that this is your first international trip. You've come here to Vegas. And, and you say to them, yeah, I saw the Eiffel Tower. I saw Venice. I saw New York, I saw the Statue of Liberty, and this person gets a weird look on their face and they're like, what? It's like, the Eiffel Tower's in Paris, Venice is in Italy, Statue of Liberty's in New York City, pyramids are in Gaza, what do you mean you saw them? You're like, well, I saw it with my own eyes, right there, I touched it, I touched the skyline. And they're just confused, they look at you and they say, well, but... but, but don't you understand, those are like parodies of the real thing. They're character, they're fakes. There's a real tower that's much bigger than that. The real Statue of Liberty is in water, not like desert. And you, you get really confused. You're like, wait, you're telling me all the stuff I saw wasn't really real or wasn't the real thing? I don't know anything different. You're like, yeah, it's, it's not the real thing. It's fake in a sense. It's a parody. It's a counterfeit. That alone wouldn't be too disheartening, but then they start telling you like, oh, what'd you do this week? And you tell them everything you did because you're going to leave it in Vegas, right? And then they start talking to you and they say, oh, but don't you know, don't you know, don't you know that joy is manufactured joy? Don't you know they've done studies on what volume of music will get you to spend more money and gamble more? Don't you know what amount of alcohol, or don't you know they know what amount of alcohol will get you to the point of walking across the hall to the casino? It's fake risk. That wasn't real risk. It's calculated risk. There's algorithms. The house always wins. They say, don't you know know the camaraderie with your friends? Don't you know that was fake camaraderie? That was debauchery. That wasn't like real friendships. You think that's going to last? They hear about the girl or the guy in the casino and say, Oh man, I wish you'd known. Don't you know? That was a prostitute. They get paid to do that. (laughs) And we laugh. If it was you, you'd feel ashamed and heartbroken because you'd say, How stupid. I fell for it. I actually thought they were interested in me. I actually thought I was pretty. I actually thought they wanted me. And you're telling me I was probably the third person that night. You're telling me this is their livelihood? I was just a trick for for money out of my wallet? And everything you find out you experienced that week, the sights you saw, the things you touched, the things you did, the experiences you had were parodies. They were fakes. They were counterfeits. None of it was real. And then when you find out at the end of it all, the biggest lie of all... That what happens in Vegas never stays in Vegas. It always gets on the plane or in the car and goes back home with you. Regret travels, right? Shame, Shame goes on board with you. Debt goes with you. STDs go with you. Regret goes with you. Nothing stays in Vegas that happens in Vegas. It all comes home. And you, you just feel lied to at this point. You feel duped. You feel stupid. You feel heartbroken because you were really excited by this stuff. And you find out that Vegas is a fake city. And everything in it is fake. Every- and the part that makes you angry is you know that it's calculated. It's designed to be this way. You start figuring out Vegas didn't really exist. It was like a little cowboy town 100, 150 years ago. It was, it was designed... To build it up bigger than life so that people would come and give the city its money. Right? The average compulsive gambler builds up between $55,000 and 90000 of debt. One in five compulsive gamblers commit suicide. 20%. There's no ads that talk about that. There's no ads that talk about the broken marriages or the broken engagements. That happened months afterwards when your fiancé, your wife, your husband finds out what you did. No one talks about the loneliness that creeps back in and ambushes you when you get off the plane on the other side. And life isn't on fire there in your hometown like it was in Vegas. This is what this passage is about. Babylon was an actual city. Presently it looks like about a mile that way, just sand in the Iraqi desert. But Babylon was the city of the ancient world. It was like the Cairo before it, it was like Rome after it. And John in a sense, John's not living during the time where Babylon's still really a thing. Babylon is a has been by the time John is writing to these first century Christians. John is using Babylon as a symbol of the big fake city. The Babylon he's referring to here is Rome. Rome is luxurious. It's it's just bathed in scarlet and purple. You've read enough fairy tales to know scarlet and purple are the signs of royalty and wealth. It's gold. It's rich. It's luxurious. It's tempting. It's larger than life. It's the what happens in Rome stays in Rome kind of thing. And it's all calculated too. When John is talking about this Babylon, this woman, this great prostitute, he's referring symbolically to that city and all the cities that follow after it. And these godless cultures that drive them and drive you and me away from God. He's saying that these godless cultures that humanity, us, all of us, me and you and everybody else, these, these godless cultures and energies that we kind of collaborate to form and that fill these cities and overflow into everywhere else, they're parodies of what a real city is supposed to be. Think about this. The Bible begins, John Robert will talk about this in, next week, the Bible begins with a marriage. And it ends with a marriage. Begins with Adam and Eve. Ends with Jesus and His Church. The Bible begins in a city. Eden was designed to become a city, a flourishing, lively city. And the Bible ends with a city, the New Jerusalem. We'll talk about it in two weeks. So the Bible is bookended with marriage and urban life, beginning and ending. And in the in the middle, all hell breaks loose. And in, in, in paradise, before sin into the world, when human beings got together and collaborated, life burst out. Creativity overflowed. Imagination just pushed the limit in the best ways. People thrived. Culture grew. Art was amazing. Architecture was beautiful. Industry was humming, but not oppressive. The economy was life-giving, not money-taking from the lower class. It was beautiful when people got together and exercise dominion over the earth that God gave them life burst out and in the end when God makes everything new again that's the image of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like but what happens in the middle? hell you remember the story of Babel if you have any familiarity with the Old Testament with with Genesis or with the church Babel is the kind of basically after Eden after sin infects our hearts this godless instinct I know there's a God and I don't like him that every human being has in his or her heart from birth and remains there unless God himself comes and removes it from you. When that instinct is in you and you multiply it by, I don't know, a couple million or a couple billion and you ask, what's society going to be like when every human being has in their heart this seed of I know there's a God, even if I reject him, even if I a an atheist river, whatever, I know there's a God and I don't like him. What happens when that starts to network? And the synergy that happens with that godlessness. Well, Babel in the Old Testament was a picture of that, right? Everybody comes together. God told them to go out into the ends of the earth and make culture. Make this place beautiful. Be my representative. Be my little mini king and my little mini queen and and develop and hone and refine what I've made. Make it beautiful. Go out to the ends of the earth and make all these little villages. like. Do this. And what did humanity do? Humanity, post-fall, when sin is in our heart, making God look like the devil and making the devil look like God. We came together and we conspired. We didn't go out in the ends of the earth. We huddled together and we built a gigantic tower, the world's first skyscraper, for the purpose of trying to get to heaven. Which is another way of saying, we know there's a God, we don't like him, we would rather be God. So we're going to build a little ladder. The ancient Near Eastern way to build an altar. Build a little ladder into heaven so we can climb up on the throne. That's what Babel represents. Babylon, even the name was taken from Babel. It's the city that flourished up around that place, Babel. Babylon, Rome, London, New York, Shanghai, Nairobi, everywhere. And I'm not picking on those cities. I'm just naming cities I can think of in a minute. That's about it. I've exhausted my list. But... (laughs) He's talking about when, when, when broken, rebellious people gather together and begin to collaborate, the sum is greater than the parts. Does that make sense? The evil that results isn't just the population of that city. It's, it's got this exponential energy to it, this exponential corrupting influence to it. And John is saying that Babylon is a fake city, just like Vegas is a fake city and it will destroy you if you don't realize it's fake Vegas will take your money, Vegas will take your health, Vegas will take your marriage Vegas will take your livelihood Vegas will take your imagination and Babylon everywhere, this Babylonian influence you could call it or Babylonism, whatever you want to call it this influence, this evil influence will take everything from you As it whispers in your ear, life far from God is where you want to live because He's oppressive and He's imposing and He's bad and He's going to take stuff from you. So run from Him. Find life far away from Him. Don't run towards Him. That's the influence of it. And it's a parody of the true, real city of God which Revelation 22 will talk about, this new Jerusalem, this new city of God coming down to earth where life will exponentially burst out the way it was always meant to. But these cities, these Babylons in between are fakes and they're frauds and they don't lead to life. They take it. Now, let's get practical with this because we're being a little bit hypothetical here about Vegas. What is this like with you and me? I've told this story before. I'll keep it brief. There's this interesting case study of my spring breaks in college. Um, there, my junior year of college and my senior year of college, I went to the exact same place with the exact same friends and had the exact same plans. Key West, Florida, is a 12-hour drive from my school. Key West is like where everybody in the southeast goes to live it up. It's like the South Padre or whatever else, that Lake Havasu or wherever people in California go. Everybody goes to Key West, and it's nonstop party. The whole week, I went when I was. I went in uh, 2003 and I went in 2004. Everything was the same, both years. The first year, uh, the first year, it was my 22nd birthday. Happened over spring break, which is a dangerous thing to happen. And I was uh, running from God very fast that year of my life. Uh, I didn't want anything to do with him. I was the poster boy for I know there's a God and I don't like him. And I'm going to kind of sort of try to suppress any inklings I have of him, any guilt, any sense of I'm scared to face him. And I'm just like, push it all away down in Key West, land of Jimmy Buffett. And so I go down there and me and my buddies have a great, great time. We have a lot of fun. We do the whole beach thing all day long. We, we go get cleaned up. We go out to the bars till about 3 in the morning, and we make use of the bars. And uh, we get back to the hotel room, and we wake up about 11 or 12 the next day, and we do it all over again. Um, but that's what 2003 was like. Um, and I'm partying it up. I'm living it up with these friends. And I'm honestly, to tell you, at the time, I thought I was having the time of my life. What happens in between 2003 and 2004 is Jesus tracks me down, tackles me, and makes me alive for the first time ever. God isn't an idea anymore. He's not a bore. He's not an eye roll. He's not a shoulder shrug. He is the living, breathing, almighty God who isn't just holy and just and righteous, but also welcoming and giving and gracious. Those two things come together for me, and He makes me alive, and I'm a different person. He's interesting to me now. I know there's a God and I love Him now. I know that Jesus is for me. I get what the cross is about. I see that and I say, God came for the unrighteous. I believe that He enabled me to believe it. That's what happened between 2003 and 2004. But the problem is, by the time January rolled around, when God was really working on my heart, I had already made plans to go back to Qs with the same friends for the same reasons. We're like, last year was epic. This year's going to be double epic. It's going to be awesome. So we go down there, and by the time spring break rolls around, i got a new heart, I'm a, a new life, new desires. I'm not enslaved to sin the way I was a year before. And so I go back down, and this weird thing happens. I get a seven-day case study in who Ben Coppage was apart from the grace of God. Because I'm with the same guys. I'm the sober one. Enjoying a a drink in the bar but not getting plastered. And I'm watching all my friends doing the exact same things I was doing the year before and i 'm hearing the things they 're saying, and i 'm watching the, the camaraderie that they 're experiencing and i 'm seeing their plans for the next day and i 'm hearing them talk about what the best part of the day was and what the worst part of the day was and, and i 've got eyes this time to see it and I, not please hear me I, honestly, it was not in a self righteous way or a condemning way or a judgmental way. It was in a sad way i 'm looking at myself the year before, and i 'm saying, "How did I fall for this it 's a fake city. Fake camaraderie. Like drunkenness was the the way that we got that band of brothers fellowship mentality. It was all fake. That didn't last. It was only there when we were drunk. And I'm looking at the fake intimacy and the fake sex that's going on the whole week and the fake hookups and the fake love. And that that time I see it, it's all fake. It's meaningless. It's hollow. There's nothing to it. It's like watching it's like watching a scripted show, and you're like, this is just tragic, it's sad. We we didn't have a boring week at all, we had an awesome week. I had great food, sat at the harbor till midnight talking to my friends, having a beer, go back to the hotel room, sit on the beach. I loved the second year at QS too, but that time I was in on the joke. By God's grace. I saw Babylon for what it was. And I didn't want anything to do with it because it smelled like death to me the second time around when I was alive. Not like life. What appeared to be joy and celebration the first year, I was like, the second year, what are people celebrating? What happened that's worthy of this kind of raucous celebration? And you ask some questions, you're like, nothing. We're celebrating celebration. We're happy about happiness. We're excited about excitement. And you just look how self-referential that world is. Everything's about me. Everything's about itself. There's no bigger thing to celebrate. There's no, nothing to be joyful about except that we're here and we're having fun. And I saw it for what it is. And I think John is trying to put you guys and me in a tour bus and drive us through Las Vegas Strip and drive us through Duval Street and Key West and say, out your right-hand window you'll see hollow, fake, but very deceptively beautiful friendship. It will leave you lonely. It will leave you isolated. It will leave you thinking you have friends when you don't. Out your left window, you will see fake love that looks so close to the real thing and feels so close to the real thing. But it will leave you not feeling prettier, or not feeling more manly, but feeling emasculated and feeling rejected when you realize it was fake. It was a lie. Out this window, you'll see fake joy. And when you sober up, you'll realize there was no reason to be joyful. It was a chemical response in my brain. And you'll feel duped. Guys, John is trying. Jesus through John is trying to protect us. From living in a city of lies. Las Cruces is Babylon. Marietta, where I grew up, is Babylon. Athens, where I went to school, is Babylon. Everywhere is Babylon. Because these lies, these whispers, that life apart from God, the fake is better than the real thing. The prostitute is better than the wife. Vegas is better than the better than Paris, better than Venice, better than New York. That's what he is warning us all. About he says, if we pursue these things, if we pursue these loves and these desires, it will leave us not with nothing but less than nothing it 's the thing about idolatry. idolatry promises the world right it 's why we do the things why we give into temptation, it always promises a payoff, an immediate payoff. But the thing with, these, with these, these errant kind of hyperactive loves and desires and cravings in our heart is that they don't give anything to us. They take it from us. They promise us that if you give all of your life to your GPA, you will succeed. And you're the one who might end college realizing four years worth of people that I don't know. And now I've ingrained a pattern that productivity is more important than relationships. Or you give yourself to, "Ah, I gotta have a girlfriend, have a girlfriend, I gotta have a boyfriend, have a boyfriend. You give yourself to that thing, and what it leaves you with at the end of it, this fake intimacy, what it leaves you with at the end is not more intimate connection to the person, but more regret with the person, more walls between you and the person, more shame you want to know what idolatry is? It's not a term that's familiar to you. Idolatry is anything that makes you feel life's going to be okay now. Anything apart from God himself that when you have it or you hold it, you just feel down to your bones, I'm okay now because I have this. Do you remember uh, the story of Sinai when when the people of God, the people of God... The Christians made a golden calf. Remember that? It's like the classic idolatry story in the Bible. Uh, Moses has been gone. It's just like the Oregon Mountains. The mountain was about that tall. It looked the same. Except at the top of the mountain that Moses is where he's meeting with God, all the people are gathered around the bottom, like the Dripping Springs area. And they can't see the top of the mountain. It's like one of those days where the mountains are fogged in. You can't see the top. And the mountain's shaking with with gigantic peals of thunder and lightning and just looks awful up top. And guess what? Moses has been gone for like 40 days, which is like a month and a half. Now, if your pastor, who is your proof positive that God is with you, is for you, the guy who told you what God said, if that guy said, hey, y'all, I'll be back in a little bit, God wants to talk to me, and he was gone for six weeks... And the place he was looked like it was on fire. What would you assume? If you're a normal, intelligent human being, you'd assume something happened to Moses. Maybe he's dead. Maybe he's not coming back. Maybe we need a sign that God is still with us. That life is still okay. That we're safe. So they made, look, these people aren't idiots. They didn't like grab some earrings, melt it down, make a tiny little cow and say, oh, it's God. This was a representation of the presence of God with them. They still believed in the God of Israel. They're like, but here He is. He's with us, y'all. We're safe now. It's okay. Their heart rate goes back down. Blood pressure goes back down. Life's going to be good because God's here. He's with us again. He's on our side. That's what an idol is. It's incarnating God. It's it's making some other object the proof that you're going to be okay, that life's okay. And the problem with that is when we give ourselves to these fake gods that aren't gods at all, we give our lives to them, we worship them. They leave us not with nothing, they leave us with less than nothing. They leave us with a hole, they leave us hollow, they leave us empty, they leave us wondering, isn't there more to life? They leave us abandoned. They leave us with nothing. Again, this passage is warning us against not just... Kind of the wind of Babylon that's blowing through the streets. This just this mega temptation that's just in the culture. It's in the water we drink and the air we breathe. He's not just war- uh, warning us about the wind, but he's saying there's a spark in your heart called idolatry. That that wind on the outside, this cultural wind is blowing on and that, that weak little ember is glowing up big red hot. And it's turning into the cravings of the heart. It's turning into you and I thinking, I have to have this attention, this notoriety in my friend group. I have to be called out in class by the professor to be okay. I have to have this GPA. I have to have this internship. I have to have this steady emotional state without any ups, without any downs. I have to have this girl. I have to have this guy. I have to have this body type. Friends, you give yourself to that, you're chasing nothing. And God loves you enough to warn you about it. The wind of Babylon, the idolatry of our heart is the fire and the damage that it does is obvious. Did you see the passage when he talks about all the stuff that happens down in chapter 18? He says... This great city, this sparkling, glorious, beautiful city called Babylon. Fallen, fallen as Babylon. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt, or basically a, a habitat, a perfectly hospitable environment for everything unclean, everything detestable, everything corrupt, everything immoral. And not just that. He says evil Left unchecked. Idolatry left unchecked is cannibalistic. It consumes you. Evil consumes itself. It implodes upon itself. A house divided cannot stand. Jesus said it. Abe Lincoln said it. Idolatry that is left to run rampant in your heart will cause your life to crater and fall in on itself because there's nothing, there's no core to hold you up. That's the damage that it does. So, what's the solution? The solution in this passage is a little bit hard to see because I've only put chapters 17 and 18 down here. John doesn't stop here. Jo- the very next chapter, next week, John Roberts is going to hold up a picture of the real bride who's not a prostitute, who doesn't use you for what she can get from you, who isn't corrupt, who isn't defiled, but the real spouse He's going to hold up a picture of that because that's Revelation 19. Guess what Revelation 20, 21, 22 is about? The new city. The new Jerusalem. This place of human flourishing and thriving and, and sexuality without shame and academic pursuit without unbelief and doubt. An industry without a whole class of people who have to work 80 hours a week just to put food on the table. An architecture that doesn't fall apart. An art that is, that is beautiful and edifying, Not profane. That's the beautiful sea. He's going to show you the real thing. He's going to take you to the real Paris, the real Venice, the real New York, the real Gaza, and say, get your eyes on this. Look how beautiful this is. How does the Bible fight idolatry? How does Jesus put out the forest fire raging in this world, Babylon, and in your heart, idolatry? How does he do it? He fights fire with fire. He fights worship with worship. If we have a worship problem, we fall in love with things that tell us life's going to be okay. How does Jesus make us fall out of love with those things? It's what's on your page, a bigger and a better fire. You fight fire with fire. If you have a raging forest fire, how do you put it out? You light another section of forest on fire so that when the real fire gets there, it has nothing left to consume and burn. Don't you know that Jesus heals the ravenous desires and cravings of your heart by giving you something worthy of those desires and cravings. The real deal. The real thing. Not whoredom, but a marriage. Not life homeless in a horrible city, but a beautiful city that you get to live in with God forever. There's a story that I'll end with. Um, It's a painting that I saw. There's one night, um, Anna and I and some other people went down to Front Street in Old City, Philadelphia. Um, we did it as an activity with this ministry at UPenn we were doing it, helping out with it at the time. And um, First Friday on Front Street in Old City, Philadelphia, uh, all of the art galleries are open for free. And they have free food and drinks and everything, so you just get to go gallery to gallery. I'm not an art person. I was like, let's just do this because it's some way to walk around and it's cool. But I go into this one gallery and I'm looking through the paintings, like, cool, cool, don't know why that's art, okay, that's great. (laughs) And I come across this painting that stopped me. And I stood there, I kid you not, for about five minutes. It was long enough to start a little bit of an argument between us. Because Anna's like, why are you still here? Let's go. (laughs) I stood five minutes and I'm looking at this painting and tears start to well up in me. And here's what the painting was. It was a a painting of um, Market Street in Philadelphia. Market Street is a nasty street in Philadelphia. It's run down... Uh, It smells like urine, I kid you not. I've seen homeless people peeing on the street in Market Street. Um, It's just, it's blighted. There's a lot of small businesses with just newspaper on the windows because they're shut down. And it was a painting of a guy who was either passed out from an overdose or was passed out drunk or something. He just looked like he had been put through a blender. He had scars and cuts on him. He was clearly homeless or didn't have a place to live. He was dirty. And he was wrapped up kind of in a blanket, just disheveled on the street. And that's what I saw first. Like, man, that's powerful. But it was the words written on the shop front window right above him. Some old advertisement that someone had forgotten to scrape off when the business went out. And it said, you are beautiful. And what made me stand still and look at that painting and tears well up in me is the contrast between what that window said and who that man was and what he was like. The best depiction of ugliness and unlovability and dirtiness and shame and a guy who clearly has made horrible decisions in his life juxtaposed with this declaration right above him in big blue painted letters. You are beautiful. I stopped because that was the gospel. The, one of the most compelling pictures of the good news of Jesus Christ that I have ever seen. Because here's the reality friends. If you look at that painting and you think oh there's a homeless guy, you haven't seen it. If you look at that painting and you say there's me you're pretty close to really getting what life's about. Because we are people who have drunk the wine of Babylon. This says it right here. The dwellers of the earth are drunk. We've drunk the Kool-Aid, haven't you? Don't you believe all the fake stuff is the real stuff and and shrug your shoulders at the real stuff and say, who wants that? Don't you do that too? Isn't there idolatry in your heart? Don't you love things that are killing you physically and spiritually? Don't you hate things that will revive you and draw you to God? Aren't those detestable? Just like to me sometimes. Who does God pursue? Does he pursue the nice-cut bankers and lawyers walking down Market Street, just clean-cut, smell like perfume or aftershave? Are those the people he came from? Are those the people that he calls beautiful? No. Because in the Bible's eyes, nobody is beautiful in their own right. The gospel is this, that God came to the loveless and to the unlovely. And he makes you lovable. And he makes you lovely. We are idolaters. We are a part of Babylon. We are spiritual adulterers. We are the dirty guy on the road who smells like he looks. My question to you and this passage's question to you is what does Jesus Christ say to you when he walks down the street and looks down at you? Does he judge you and condemn you and kick you out of the way so he can walk on? Or does he say, I came and I lived and I died and I rose up again to make you beautiful again? Friends, that's the decision before you tonight. Do you want to keep living in Vegas thinking it's the real deal or do you actually want to go to Paris? Do you really want to go to Venice? Do you want to break up with the horror and Mary, the wife of your dreams, the husband of your dreams. That's what Jesus wants to know tonight. That's why he revealed this to us tonight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you to get your hands in our heart to free us from the reign of idolatry. We need you to bring sanity back to our insane desires. We need you to open our eyes and let us see the the parody, the caricature, the cartoonish worlds we live in. We need you to make us long for the real city where we will dwell with you forever. So I pray for myself, for my friends, for those who know you, for those who don't know you, that everybody the the same, that we would be drawn to you. For those that have never known you, that they would actually be able to believe that you're a God who comes for the unlovely and makes them lovely. You're not waiting on anyone here to make themselves lovely because they can't. We pray this in your name.